1: Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin? And how did they end? Let's find out on this episode of Fan of History.
2: We have the chief eunuchs, Rab Sareft. There are several chief eunuchs because there are several groups of eunuchs uh, one at King's Court, one at the Court of the Crown Prince, and probably in the other courts as well. Mm-hmm. But these two chief eunuchs are on this level. And of course, the, the chief eunuch of the King's Court is the most important. Right. But the, the uh, m- amount of eunuchs in the Assyrian system is uh, quite impressive. Yeah. And then we get to the next guy at the vizier level. And he is the chief justice, huh. the Sartenu. And uh, he's, n- he's not anywhere near like the head judge of the country, but he is involved in legal matters. And he can also show up on the eponym lists. Okay.
1: Is he like attorney general, maybe?
2: We'll get into... We'll, maybe we can make a whole episode about the legal system because it's really uh, different from today. But <sighs> this guy is important for the justice system. And the English translation of his title is the chief justice. Okay. But we'll move on on the vizier level... To the majors of cities. All right. So the major of Nineveh is lower than the governor of Nineveh, but he is on the level of the viziers and the chief justice. All right. So the governor's jurisdiction moves outside of the city, but the major's does not. Oh, okay. Okay. We also have to return to people at the court who are as powerful as the Chief Justice and the Viziers. And this position is <laughs> fantastic. We have the Rab Nuhatime, Oof. the Chief Baker. <laughs> <laughs> there are also Rab Nuhatimes at other courts as well, but this is the, she- the King's Chief Baker. He is actually responsible for feeding and taking care of everyone at the court. That's a big job.
1: He reminds me of in the Disney, he's like a chubby guy with a mustache and a French accent, right?
2: (laughs) Yes. The the Assyrians actually went to France and got people from now they didn't.
1: I am the chief (laughs) of Sorry about that, guys.
2: Yes, um, if you have seen um, the musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, there is a very good Chief Baker in that.
1: Oh, my daughter just saw it. She came in to tell me about it.
2: Okay, ask her about the Chief Baker. I will.
1: Okay, there is. I I
2: told you this level was huge, and we have a large group of people who are doing a very important service for the country, which makes them. As important as viziers. And these are the tax collectors. Oh, yeah. And land for taxation is basically split in two groups of lands. Uh, The lands controlled by the crown, which is all lands. But then, of course, in the provinces, the governor gets to control it. So that's the difference. Direct control by the crown or in the provinces,
1: yeah. So the tax collectors, so the tax collectors work for the crown. See, that's a different way than the, you know the others. You know that's
2: yeah. And they don't work for the governor.
1: Yeah. Sometimes they were just, hey, you want to get a here? Here's a good job. We'll make you the tax collector. That's like a reward because you could take everybody's money. Yes.
2: And if you're the governor and the king's tax collector arrives, you
1: better have the taxes ready. Oh right, he works for the governor. Oh okay.
2: And here is an exception in the pyramid because no one can command the tax collectors except the king,
1: right? Or
2: perhaps the crown prince.
1: Yeah, but still, it's, it's centrally controlled. It's not. That's not. So,
2: if the grand vizier or someone tries to tell the tax collector something, they will ignore it because they want to go out to collect the king's money.
1: Yeah, you definitely get in trouble for taking. That. I mean, it's sort of mafia-like, but it's also very business-like
2: they are probably also involved in the intelligence service
1: oh for sure everybody was. well for the good kings everybody were everybody should be that's I think that's why like as the empire got older and the people that weren't and you know that didn't know those how to run the intelligence services that's why it ended up getting in trouble.
2: The intelligence service probably cared a lot about the money as well
1: you better you better believe it.
2: We are still not finished with the vizier level. There are more people here. And these officials are extremely Assyrian. We talked about them as early as in the time of Tukulti-Ninurta II and the invention of cavalry.
1: Who's these guys?
2: There is no English name for them. They are the Mular Kisu. The best English translation is the horse collectors. Oh, the horse collectors. All right. Yes. They are... Working at this level of the government, they are very powerful guys and they are getting horses for the army. Hmm. They have special rights. They work in pairs or even in small groups sometimes. They go out and make sure that the Assyrian army have horses. This is also something that people high in the pyramid really care about. The Assyrians have to have their horses. They are as important as arrows. Sure.
1: no kidding. The tanks they're the, you know they're the backbone and it's not like you may have a factory per se. you know if you're making tanks, you can make sure your factories' going you got a, they' got a lot of horses from a lot of different places. That's amazing. I'm sorry, I'm just amazed at all this organization.
2: And at this level as well, we start to get uh, purely military people. So yeah. the army captains, the Rab Kisri, and the charioteers show up at this level. So if you are anyone that actually rides a chariot in battle, you are at this level. Even if you are the shield bearer on the chariot, you yeah. are at this level.
1: Now that, I read that they were kind of ethnically heartland Assyrians that were in the charioteer corps
2: that makes sense
1: yeah they were you know they were the core you know you were a Syrian Assyrian from the heartland and um the the cavalry though the cal cavalry necess- was not necessarily that but the chariot corps was a core you know you we
2: were- we must remember this is a very efficient army hmm. and we i I listen a lot to the ancient warfare podcast and They have pretty much debunked chariot warfare. Yeah. The chariots are for show. They are to intimidate, but they work quite poorly in a real battle. Yeah. So what the charioteers do is that they do like ranger missions. They do military operations Mm -hmm. that are of a special delicate nature. And they are very trusted. That's probably why they need to be Assyrians then.
1: I think of it like, I always try to, you know, get analogies. I think of it like, even today, we, you might say like, you know, some piece of military equipment isn't wouldn't be great in a big, full-on, major power war. You, you know, say, the, you know, the highest technology, wipe them all out. We need soldiers. But when you're controlling... A population that doesn't have them, they're quite effective. So, like if you were, you know, you had a town, peasants, and just people in a the town, they don't have chariots and that kind of thing. And you come mar- riding in with a two or three horse chariot, would, you know, that's, that's, you know, just imagine just like an armored car, you know, in a war today, you get destroyed instantly. But an armored car in a city is quite a weapon.
2: Also, remember that king and high officials they get transported by chariots. Yeah, that too. So these are important people for doing taxi service for right. h- higher officials.
1: And these soldiers are training all the time. So I mean, these are your ba- really badass guys to, to be bodyguards.
2: And I'm not sure, but uh, most chariots had a three-person crew. And the it seems that the status of the bowman on the chariot, the guy actually firing the arrows, is somewhat less and easily replaced by any archer from the Assyrian army. Ah. So it is the shield bearer and the driver that is most important.
1: Yes. And if you're driving the king, you better be a trusted person.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Right. We have one final position at the vizier level. And this is a very mysterious position because Hmm. we don't know what this person did, but it was always a woman. Iakintu. 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 Kintu. She has some sort of position and function, we don't know what it is, but what we can deduce is that she is an eminent individual with substantial wealth. Hmm. And that's all we know about her.
1: Maybe it was a ceremonial position. Could be. Yeah.
2: That's the end of the Vizier level. We have to move another level down in the pyramid. At the next level, we have the scribes. Oh, for sure.
1: Everybody has a
2: scribe. Yeah, because writing was so difficult. Yeah. And you can almost lift out a separate pyramid of scribes. I'm sure. So the highest scribe. Is the vice chancellor, the Umanu, which we discovered much higher in the pyramid, because he was the king's scribe. Aha! Uh-huh. But below there, there, anyone who could actually read and write is in a very privileged position, because society really needs them. Right.
1: Just the time-consuming nature of writing. I mean, even if you could write, I mean, it's not like oh, let me scribble something down or quick shoot off an email you know just think of how long it just takes to write a tablet it's just in general <laughs>
2: <Yes>. <laughs> I want to uh, write a letter of complaint to my noisy neighbor that I have to get a scribe It's yeah, so yeah. much work
1: just like, just like when, you know you think of like you know the 50s and 60s I mean they would have a typewriter you know and the executive would say take a message maybe the guy could write he would type but whew, you know that that's gonna take his whole day oh yes
2: it seems that really nobody in the pyramid above this level except the humano, could read and write, which means that everybody above this level had to have scribes. Right. Scribes were everywhere and they were really important.
1: I think the, the read and writing thing I've been just you know here reading more about too. I th- I'm pretty sure it's like not everybody, some people could, you could probably sorta of get by with reading and you didn't really write because because of all the um symbols. So the average person, not the average per every person, but say somebody in the court that had some education could, you know, get the basics, but they would sorta of write like a baby. Then a scribe could like really put together, you know, the right way.
2: One big thing you have to think about in the Assyrian Empire is that there is no education Mm -hmm. only the scribes have education yeah because it's all super conservative so most people that get a position above this and below this inherit it Mm. so they learn their position by apprenticeship to probably their father
1: Yeah, they don't have an actual school.
2: So there is no formal education. There are no schools, no nothing. You just learn on the job by watching someone in your mentor, which is probably your dad. Yeah, And of course, you could, through patronage, get a position with an uncle, a family friend or something, that my son would make a good...
1: You would think you would have to, because a lot of people mustn't have had dads, just for various reasons, you know. Like,
2: or the dad had ten sons, and or or a dad had ten sons and sent them out to his friends. <laughs> so, God, I can't deal with all these sons.
1: But I mean, we remember research about Asher Banipal arguing with his brother, and how he, you know, he we know he read and write really well, but they they were all taking classes together, and then the sister didn't practice her writing, so then I mean, they must have had some education, and at least in the you know the royal family, and then in the in the court, just rudimentary, and I, I don't know. I just believe that the scribes were just really a level ahead, and they were the record keepers, and the you know they needed. And it's not easy to write this stuff. I mean, you know, just imagine. And if you were just writing letters, everybody's handwriting would be different. But a scribe would have good handwriting. Well, these aren't letters. These is this are hard stuff. Yeah. Any hoots. <laughs> With, but this
2: system is, of course, extremely vulnerable because if you, you have an important position and maybe you have no son, maybe your son is too young. So most offices that we have talked about now have a second in command, a FANU, which ah. is sort of the the reserve guy. Fantastic. And this could very well be a son, but there had to be one. And this would probably be the first person considered to be a replacement, then maybe your son would replace him, etc. But you always had to have a backup guy for most offices. They
1: really had this thing put together.
2: <laughs> yes, they they have been thinking about this for a long time.
1: Yeah. In my opinion, it's because you, you know how we always say they were traders, they're like businessmen. They really did run it like a bit like a bit how you would run a business. Oh, yes. You know, he must have had meetings and said, listen, we got to, you know, we need another level to take care of this and that, and provinces are getting farther apart.
2: The Assyrians themselves never talk about this as a pyramid, but they do have a lot of offices and they are very aware of their status. We we do have, at this point, a huge mess of positions and offices that I will not into go into detail of, but we'll find the... The eunuchs at about this level, the important eunuchs that are not chief eunuchs, but the Assyrians, they knew extremely well what the status of someone was because they had uniforms, badges, standards, bodyguards, chariots. They had a lot of status symbols. Yes. And when you assumed your office, you almost all the time swore an oath of loyalty directly to the king.
1: Yeah. With horrible curses involved, if you were to, you know, not go by them, and then they would uh, make sure the curses came true if you did, you know, not follow your oath. Pretty strict, weren't they?
2: Oh yes, <laughs> uh, we've seen what happens to people who break their oath. Yeah, the ma- maggots will arrive and eat you, and <laughs> meteors will strike you, horrible and things. of course you will be mutilated
1: mutilated and, you know, your children will grind your bones into dust and all kind of horrible things.
2: There's one more level we have to talk about, which is almost the bottom.
1: All right. The Sabi. All right. What do they do?
2: That's an interesting word because it can be translated both as soldiers Mm. or laborers because the Assyrians made no distinction between that. So if you were the unskilled mass, the working class, you were both a soldier and a laborer, depending on what needed to be done.
1: Yes. I it, it, so it was just uh, just uh, reading some on that also. And so, yeah, this, a regular foot soldier be a soldier or a laborer. And so those guys, from what I understand, wouldn't necessarily be part of the standing army. So they didn't have to pay them all the time. Were like your chariot guys and those, you know, those horse people, you know, getting the horses and even the cavalry. They were your standing paid army. But if you kept, you know, your gigantic army constantly under arms and you had to pay them, that wasn't good. So then these were your soldiers and laborers. And that's why they were that crew, whatever you needed. You know, that was like your consignment. No, not consignment. Conscription.
2: Yes, the big mass of people you could work with.
1: Right, very interesting. Amazing, really.
2: And also remember that we have no currency in Assyria. There are no coins. Yeah. So how were all these people paid? Yeah. Uh, So basically the the central court, the central government, or the provincial government paid people. And the payment were basically in the form of land sometimes but mostly food and clothing mhm like the stuff you needed for for uh, basic life
1: and i imagine good clothing depending on your on your status right
2: yes definitely declaring
1: right very clearly your status right and then that's how you'd be paid so it's so, you know what's also interesting is did you know that when they so if the king invited you to dinner, one of the, you know, not a commoner, but one of these people, depending on your status or how much he wanted to impress you or whatever, it would depend on the on the uh dinnerware. So if you were like super important, there would be gold, you know, and next silver, I believe bronze, and ceramic, you know, down the line. So there'd be a dinner, and then you would have all that. And maybe that's kind of where the chief cupbearer comes into, because those cups, you know, there'd be gold cups, silver cups, <laughs> bronze cups. Yep. They're very much about, you know, showing your status. The
2: king could sometimes add special rewards. And the examples we have that the king could grant you clothing, clothing. Uh,
0: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: Imagine that would be very fancy clothing.
0: Yeah. Uh,
2: it could also give you jewelry. It could give you tax exemptions. Or you could get the privilege of getting to live in the palace for the rest of your life. Huh. We do have a lot of letters from the 7th century, and one common theme from almost all officials is that they are complaining about being underpaid. Uh. And it seems to be accepted practice that all the officials would augment their income by uh, taking bribes. Yeah. Doing a little extra taxing and stuff like that. But inefficiency and corruption were severely punished yeah there were mutilations and executions of bad officials so people were kind of willing to do their best to do their job
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a balance like don't try to take too much but it's also a good excuse if we need to get ready you. well you, you were you know you did a bribe we're gonna take
2: you know kill you But that would probably have to go through the justice system, which we'll go back to later, because this is not chaos. There is a strict justice system, and it's fairly interesting, but we'll not talk about that now.
1: No, no, right. That's like in China was like that, because even in Confucianism, it's like they say it's better to, I believe, and please if I'm wrong, but I believe, you know, in general, it's it's better to take the bribe if it's good for your family, even if it's against the king. And the Chinese officials, I know, were notoriously underpaid, and so just bribery was just part of the system. But it was also illegal.
2: I think that's exactly the case here.
1: That it is illegal, yeah. but it is a
2: necessary part of the system.
1: Yes. Kind of like the Eastern way, you know. That that's probably in the Western too, but it's not necessarily baked in as the same way.
2: In all the administration of Assyria, there were basically two... Two major units of the nation, the Assyrian heartland and greater Assyria. Okay. And this is confusing because the term land of Asher means either both these territories or only the heartland. Uh. But if the Assyrians say the land, they only mean the heartland. Okay. Okay. And the heartland is basically a triangle, with its apex at the city Ashur, yeah, on the Tigris, with the base stretching from Arbail in the east to Nineveh, in the west. And there were four major cities: Ashur, Arbail, Nineveh, and Kala. Right. And this was also pretty fertile agricultural land.
1: Yeah, that's up in like north Iraq. Right up against the mountains, then butts against the mountains there, and then, you know, Mediterranean climate, as we said.
2: And I think this is what makes the uh, governor of the heartland the most important governor, because this is where all the food comes from, or most of the food, at least. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and the central government's just there, too, of course.
2: And remember, they're very conservative, and the king can give special rewards. And over these perhaps thousand years king had given a lot of privileges to the cities yeah so the cities were in a very special place and they jealously guarded this right and the situation was worst in Asher that's why the king decided to leave Asher
1: right it was um
2: uh... it was also uh, another special position was to be uh, the governor of Asher Of the city, he did not report to anyone else but the king. Yes. And didn't take any orders from anyone else but the king.
1: So that was definitely, and then he was most likely a eunuch too, most of the time.
2: Or perhaps a powerful noble, because this is where the powerful noble families love to hang out in Asher, because that's where they have all their privileges.
1: Yes. They made it sort of a ceremonial city eventually. You know, when you think about it, because the capital was in Nineveh, so then Asher is good. Okay, you guys could be big shots in Asher, um, you know, and be traditionalists or whatever, but, you know, they could, King could still get away with his other stuff in the other towns. <laughs> yes. I mean, in Nineveh. Yeah.
2: And then we, we talk about the king moving the capital to another city, but the term capital, which we have used a lot of times in this podcast, it's a bit misleading because right. it's not like a modern capital. It's the administrative administrative headquarter, pretty much. So where the king is, the administration headquarter is. And if the king goes to Nineveh, then Nineveh becomes this place. That is extra important. But Asher is still the ancient city of Asher. The, the city of the god Asher is still the most important city in a sense.
1: Mhm in the name of the this, this country
2: I just noted that I missed an important position Who is it In uh, in the pyramid uh, a lot of positions actually we do have uh, the the priests Oh sure sure of course
1: I mean you know uh, I mean you talked about the government
2: they're also kind of in, uh, in a in a special pyramid of their own
1: Yes that's what I was going to say
2: And controlled directly by the king, who is the chief priest of the chief
1: god. Right. That's what makes you an Assyrian by being a worshipper of Asher.
2: Yes, but each temple is its special administrative unit. And they have their own structure. And maybe we should save that for religion.
1: I mean, you know, there's all these other things, like we said, you were saying... You know, you got to move troops around. You got to collect taxes. These are official, you know, duties of a government to run a government. And but because religion and government were so intertwined, being an official, the religion was important. And the the things that they, the actual physical thing they had to do was to bring food. Right? They had to bring food to all the temples in the provinces and feed the god. And and you had to take. You took a part of the ceremony too. So after they gave the food to the god. They even had this like mouth opening ceremony supposedly, and the god became sentient. And they play music, and they give him this, you know, his food, and then then what was left. I don't know how he actually ate it. Then the people would eat it, and it was ceremonial because a lot of it was rotten, probably. It's so, you know it wasn't good anymore. But that's what made you, you know, an Assyrian by taking part in the in feeding with the eating with the god. And then, so you had to get the food from Asher all around the empire. So that's the administrative tasks of these, you know, temple pyramids. It's like a physical job you had to do. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, we must also remember that in addition to being super conservative, the Assyrians are also extremely superstitious, mm-hmm. which we will see again in the legal system
1: yeah, and everybody in ancient times were so superstitious like this. It was such a cause and effect. And just in my opinion, they just, you know, you just. I think that the gods were kind of like airheads in a way. You know, it was like you just had to give them their food and do their things for them, and or they'll like send a flood, or they'll do something horrible. So just kiss their asses, do what you got to do. It's sort of a, you know, that's why it's so much ritual.
2: Yes. And the biggest difference, we've said it before, the biggest difference to modern religion or to Christianity or Islam is that it doesn't matter really what you believe. It matters what you do. The rituals are all important. Exactly. There is another position in in the empire that is sort of outside of the pyramid. And uh, there is a standing order to all officials in the system And this standing order is amazing, because this is the duty of all officials in the Empire. And the order is, you must report to the king whatever you see and hear. Yeah. Which is, of course, impossible. (laughs) But there is a group of guys who will help you with this. They are the messengers. And we know... The empire has, in the seventh century at least, a network of military roads and posting stations. So you have messengers traveling everywhere. This is the postal system that Tiglath the III invented. Yep. And we also have uh, fire signals to convey messages. Oh, right. Especially in the border regions. Yeah. Yes. So communication is
1: pretty swift in the empire. Yeah, it needed to be just so much going on. We're on the edges and in it, and you know, you could lose it quick if some army comes fo- coming through or some you know things like that. It definitely, um, definitely was important, and they used mules, right? We, we got you guys covered that, and before I was in the podcast, I believe, but I believe there was mule teams that were the postal on the postal routes. Not like a horses. You know, you think of the Pony Express and horses, but they use mules because they were better, you know, to go through desert, and, you know, you didn't need them for the war necessarily, and they would use, like, a two-mule team. And then they, like you said, they had the relay stations, and they could get stuff pretty far from, you know, a long distance by using those relay systems. Huh. And how about the envelopes, too? You know, about, remember how they would they would put a letter... And they would, so, you know, they actually had envelopes. They would, you know, have the tablet and then they would put another clay around it. And then they would, when you, the king or whoever is supposed to get it, then you break it and you knew that nobody else saw it. Pretty clever. Right? I mean, I'm telling you, you, these guys set the foundation for empire in the, you know, the Near East for, for the rest of the, you know, as a history pretty much. Like you said, we can go by what the court was and, Istanbul, I almost said Constantinople. Just like there, you know, that's how they... But these are the guys who started it. Oh, yes. Because they were very organized.
2: And I want to talk about Plato. Who? Plato. The, Plato? The Greek uh, philosopher. Oh, well, let's hear. In one of his works, he defined the ideal form of government is the enlightened monarch. Mm. And he thought that this was the best way to run any state. And mm-hmm. this is very much an autocracy with right. one all-powerful individual at the top. And as long as this person is competent, such right. as perhaps Ashton the II or Sargon, yeah, it works. Mm-hmm. It's Decisions can be made quickly and propagate down the system and stuff gets done. But the weakness, of course, is when the king gets old, right? like Shalmaneser III did at the end, Mm -hmm. or that we will see very soon when we continue the narrative. (laughs) (laughs) Then the burden falls on the system. Because if the king doesn't control it, these other guys must make the decisions and it's not like Nazi Germany where Hitler intentionally built a system so that it would collapse without him. Yeah. Two different officials had the same job pretty much in. Right. And were hostile to each other in a sense. But here, the system is kind of built to handle a bad monarch, and it did survive weak monarchs several times. Yeah, that's a good point.
1: There's a lot of Varuses, you know, like Varus the who knew what was going on, and they just kept running things.
2: But in the end, this will perhaps prove the undoing. We'll analyze the fall of the Empire a lot in upcoming episodes.
1: A monarchy will always prove the undoing of anything because of the, no, you will. it's always a roll of the dice. Dan Carlin said in one of his episodes, actually on the World War One about Kaiser Wilhelm, you know? Like if Kaiser Wilhelm wasn't the ruler of Germany, there might not have been a World War One Because he wasn't a complete moron, but he was not a, you know, he would have never got elected to that job. The well,
2: That raises a very good question. So... What else works? And do we really know? Capitalism and democracy is still extremely new
1: things. Absolutely, and we have—we're we looking in the world today, which is appropriate. We're seeing autocratic tendencies.
2: We saw what democracy led to in the twentieth century in some nations.
1: Right. I remember Hitler saying himself, like look at the look at these still silly laws and they you know there's nine political parties and nobody can get anything done you need me it sounds familiar and, and what we've been hearing in our country and in some other places and sure an enlightened monarch is the best but you just can't if you could if you could program one you know if there's an an AI sure that's guaranteed to be enlightened but how do you guarantee enlightenment
2: yesterday uh, it- there was a vote of no confidence for the Swedish prime minister and he got uh, fired. We have eight parties. They cannot cooperate. And uh, after the last election in Sweden, it took four months to form a government. And I know this is very similar to the situation in the Netherlands and in Israel. And now we really don't know. We have an upcoming election in 2022. But now we might get into... A forced election, an extra election, which uh, might make things clearer, but it's super confusing. And you, anyone from, uh, for example, the uh, United States would probably think that all our eight parties are super similar. They would be uh, about where Bernie Sanders is (laughs) on your political right-left scale.
1: Uh, All of them.
2: But uh, they do feel that they are very different from each other, and now it's uh, political chaos here.
1: But it's working, so that shows that you're in like th- the institutions are. You know, it's not like people are murdering each other on the streets, right? <laughs> not yet. I mean, you know, it sounds if you say to Americans, that it just sounds funny. Like, well, there's no government now. Like, what does that mean? There's no government. Does that mean you know people murdering each other in the streets? But no laws are still there. You still have institutions, you still have administration. Back to Assyria. <laughs> Back to Assyria. They didn't do it. They would have thought, you're insane to do it that way. Let's mutilate the other eight parties and we're good.
2: <laughs> so what, what I... I talked a lot about their super conservatism, but at times of great stress and strains to the empire, they did flexible things. And that is one reason why the state survived such a long time, but because there were other mechanisms, except for this power structure, the pyramid. We had families and tribal affiliations. Hmm. Right. And it must be stressed that social advancement in the sense you can get it in the United States, at least that's what you say. It it didn't uh, it didn't really exist. Uh, one single individual had a very hard time to advance in the system based purely on merit. Yeah. But a family could, over the long yeah. over the long run.
1: Yeah, and they could. Th- you think so people maybe thought more that way. You know, not you're not so individualistic in a time like this. In these times where you know you would think for your family and you know move up your family that kind of thing. Yeah, because you could say you know, if you got deported from your place and moved into the cities, and you were from a good family, there was a good chance to advance that way, or become a eunuch was actually, you know, a family could make you, but you weren't. You really couldn't help your family because you became part of the king's family when you were a eunuch. But it was still, it must have reflected well in some way on your family if your you know, your son, one of your sons, was a eunuch. That was the Tertano.
2: We do also have. Uh... The what, how you addressed another person. We have this from letters, and uh, it's probably what they did when they talked to each other. Hmm. So if you were talking to someone above you, okay, you would address them as "my lord Belly." Belly. And if you refer to yourself, you would tell you would uh, call yourself "uradka," which uradka. means your servant ah but if you're talking to
1: your servant says xyz
2: exactly and uh, if you're talking to a social equal based on the position in the pyramid and sometimes based as well on family you would address them as my brother
1: oh, okay just like the old king letters and you know the bronze age and stuff my brother this my you know i see
2: but if you're talking to someone way above you, uh, for example, if you're talking to the king, yeah. you would not call yourself your servant, or you would go to lengths to call yourself even worse things. <laughs> we have a letter. Where somebody refers to himself as a simple dog in the king's service. Jeez.
1: And groveling. Talk about groveling.
2: If you like this uh, conversation, you can <laughs> go to Patreon and support the podcast because we do need your help to stay around. We've been around for a long time yeah. and we want to be around for a lot longer. You can find us on patreon.com and search for Fano History. It's a mutual agreement in that if we don't produce episodes, you don't pay anything. So if we would, for any reason, miss an episode, you don't pay anything. Right. Uh, Yes. Thanks to everyone who has supported us.
1: I think it's, I hope you think it's worth it. I also, I love when listeners reach out, so please do. Reach out to us. Please.
2: Thank you, Bernie. Speak to you next time. Thank you,
1: Dan. Yep. Talk to you again, Dan. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash history. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time.